Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. on options and opportunities. I'll be playing another song and uh, then we'll be starting the show. So let me select something that we haven't heard in a while or something that we have. Cry Freedom. Here we go. Uh, you might want to email uh, uh, to your guest on common bonds. Uh, this way, if the pr- uh, problem persists, I will do the same thing uh, to get them into the show. Yeah, I'll give you. Uh, yeah, I'll uh, give you his number because he said to just call him, so that should work. Okay, great. Yes, yeah, so PM it to me, and I will call him. Okay. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to hearing uh, all the wonderful things happening uh, this past month uh, with the AWA. I've been following you on uh, Facebook. Uh, so, yeah, you've had an eventful uh, time, and that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, we've been busy. You know, we're preparing things for the fall variously as 
you know, as we speak to different groups and organize. But, you know, we've really been following the news, uh, which, yeah. uh, you know, for a change is actually pretty good. Yes, it has been. Uh, I tell people when they ask me about what I think of different things happening in our country and in our world, uh, I tell them that uh, basically my ignorance is vast. I know a lot of things, uh, but <laughs> I don't know details of everything. So I really can't give an, uh, an informed opinion on most things. Uh, but I have worked uh, with uh, labor-related issues uh, for the past 40 years or so. So uh, although I don't know everything there as well, I, I, I'm pretty well informed generally, so uh, I can speak of that. And I get notices from the Department of Labor every day. Uh, so from what I can see, what I can understand, there are a lot of good things happening there as well. Uh, there's a lot of misleading things, but those type of things with statistics have been misleading uh, since at least uh, the days of Mayor Koch when he redefined what unemployed meant. So, uh, but the rest <laughs> of it, there's a lot of good things happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here in New Jersey, uh, Governor Murphy had convened a task force to deal with misclassification, and they just recently released a uh, report. So that was really interesting to see, you know, uh, this report on the issue. You know, we've been following this issue that, you know, if you have a job and you're not a W-2, you're a 1099, you're not going to get the benefits subsequently right. of working. You're not going to get health care. You're not going to get uh, money towards retirement. You know, you're not going to be able to file for workers' comp. You're not going to be able to file for unemployment. So, you know, this is an issue that's really big uh, uh, for uh, construction unions and in the construction industry among trucking and, you know, a lot of other, like, pretty blue-collar jobs, among other jobs. You know, it's really big among writing, graphic design, as we've said before on the show. Uh, but Governor Murphy uh, announced the report at the uh, Building Trades Union Conference in Atlantic City. And it was a really mm -hmm. good report to say that now, the Labor Department is going to be working closer with the Division of Consumer Affairs in the State Justice Department, and, you know, they regulate a lot of professions, act, actually, uh, where people need accreditation, so that would be one way that it's done. So, they're definitely going to be seeking to enforce this. You know, they really want to work with the uh, Federal Department of Labor, so that should be good. Uh, but one of the most interesting things that I found when reading this report was that one of the biggest problems, you know, what we've come across, and I've come across this too, you know, in my work with uh, Trucking Association out of Elizabeth, New Jersey, is that oftentimes you'll have the major company will subcontract to the minor company. And then the mm -hmm. minor company is the one that's really misclassifying people. And they're doing so in a way dictated by the conditions set by the larger corporations. But the larger corporation, the one that's really easy to get at, the one that has, you know, like name recognition that's public facing, is like, oh, no, 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 it's not us. Oh, I'm so sorry. But, you know, now they're, they don't want to really take that argument anymore, and there's going to be penalties. You know, if they can see, if they can prove this type of thing. So it's really good. Because this is like a really big problem, too, dealing with like franchises like McDonald's. If you're like, oh, our local restaurant, you know, we can't do anything 
you know, about our local restaurant, that's an independent business that's like corporate headquarters of McDonald's. You know, now, at least in New Jersey, that won't be so uh, easy for the companies to claim. So, you know, we're happy about that. Uh, they recommended a few pieces of legislation. We'll see what happens with that. So, that was really good. Um, yes, there's also been a few actual good bills out of Washington, D.C. as well. The uh, House of Representatives passed 15 an hour. You know, we're really happy to see that. Me too. Uh, and it was really crazy. Yeah, yeah. So it was really good to see that. You know, it was crazy actually to see that 21 states still have a minimum wage of 7.25 an hour. So that makes me that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think of it. At least most states would have like, oh, maybe it's eight, nine dollars, for example. But no, you know, there's 21 states that had it. No minimum wage, or where it was at the federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five, uh, and it was last raised by that great bastion of uh, progressive causes, uh, George W. Bush. So you know that's really funny that at least George W. Bush could be progressive on a couple things. Uh, you know, so <laughs> it's great or a sign of how horrible the times we live in to say that. Remember the good old days of George W. Bush when he was. And we thought he was the worst president ever. Yep, I, I remember nothing thinking... of Richard Nixon. Yes, I remember thinking that, and uh, living uh, uh, past that, uh, you see how wrong you were, you know, to believe that at the time. But uh, such is uh, life, such is reality, and uh, we go onwards. Um, what does this do for the AWA's uh, focus? Because uh, uh, it seems that that battle has been won with what Governor Murphy has been uh, doing and continues uh, to do. Um, in addition to uh, educating people about, uh, you know, how they're affected and what they can do if they're being misclassified, um, how does this uh, change the course of the AWA? Well, you know, one, it still has to be enforced, and, you know, public education about the issue is a major part of it. For example, there's always going to be, you know, small employers, people trying to get around it, people trying to benefit off ignorance in that fashion. That's mm -hmm. a big thing, for example. And then, you know, the battle isn't always over. You know, when you say, oh, you're an employee, great. You know, you still have, you know, people with W-2 forms who are making, what, nine an hour, not really right. getting any of the middle-class benefits, you know, like health care plans, retirement plans, paid, uh, paid vacation, for example, since sick days was mandated into law. Uh, for permanent employees. So, you know, we're still working on those issues, for example, and we still want to organize, you know, to improve conditions so that people, right. you know, can live like a middle-class lifestyle. You know, wages, you know, might be up, you know, here in New Jersey because the uh, law raising the minimum wage for 15 an hour took effect. So minimum wage uh, starting July 1st uh, became 10 an hour. So, you know, that's still, you know, that's going through. So, you know, we're working towards that, you know, educating people about that and organizing people to live like a good life. So the local businesses, the bigger ones, the chains are putting up uh, signs 
uh, that uh, they're giving 11 or 13. So I guess uh, until the 15 goes into effect, uh, this way they could uh, lure as much of the employee pool uh, as they possibly can for entry level and uh, um, you know, other like part-time positions. But the fact that they're not hiring full-time uh, that full-time is being uh, dangled like a carrot on a stick and very few people attain it, uh, regardless of how long they're there and how hard they work. Uh, that's something I feel that needs to be addressed because uh, you have a lot of people taking positions which are plentiful at this uh, particular point in time, the entry-level ones. Uh, and many times they speak of promises that if they stick in there, they'll be given full-time and benefits, and that for many of them, this never happens. Yeah, that is really difficult uh, for companies, and especially difficult in, like, blue-collar positions. You know, usually, at least there's supposed to be a grace period where, you know, like, after XYZ time, you know, we can start discussion, discussing that. 90 days, you know, quite often, maybe six months. But, you know, it's after that when they start dangling the carrots or, like, pushing the goal lines back that, it becomes especially difficult that way. And it's really difficult, you know, in a lot of these jobs where people are hard to differentiate, for example, say, oh, I'm really great at, like, customer service or, you know, loading the truck. And that's why we do advocate, you know, people market themselves, why we do, we do advocate that people educate themselves on the best way to differentiate themselves for example, mm -hmm. in this day and age, when it's absolutely necessary, keep looking, networking. <coughs> oh, excuse me. It's okay. You okay? Uh, I think I've gotten a little summer cold somehow. <laughs> I hope you feel better. Busy month. I know it has been. And I'm uh, up to so, yeah. because uh, I've been away uh, from things for a while. Uh, uh, a lot of things uh, entered my sphere of attention, and uh, I again hit upon the fact that, uh, um, you know, we have limitations in terms of our attention, our time, our knowledge. So uh, um, I had to, again, kind of like rethink uh, how I'm moving forward uh, because um, I had taken on so much responsibility that I was not able to really move uh, uh, as much as I'd like on anything. So I had to go back and again, you know, re-examine my priorities uh, and uh, come up with a new way of uh, doing things so that I could accomplish uh, more with the time that I have. So uh, I seem to have uh, worked through whatever that obstacle was because I've been meeting with people now and you and I will have a conversation very soon uh, so I can get back on track with the AWA as well. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I understand that. You know, we all have busy lives in this era. You know, we are all trying to balance, you know, work, which can be very difficult. You know, if you're only making or working like 25 hours a week, you know, you're looking for work subsequently that remaining, you know, 15 plus, you know, you go right. to networking events, educating oneself, and then, you know, there's always, Volunteer commitments, is hobbies, family, et cetera, et cetera. You brought up a very important point here um, because I remember when I first entered the job market, uh, the story that you basically uh, bought into was that uh, you can enter somewhere and you could stay there for life. And that there's a ladder you can climb 
And uh, even though it wasn't 100% fair, it was a ladder and you could uh, climb it as high as you cared to go. Uh, and then at a certain point, you would retire. You, this was symbolized by getting a gold watch, uh, although I know very few people actually got a gold watch. But anyway, uh, and then you were set up for retirement. Um, and uh, that was kind of like the story that uh, people were buying into. And that changed uh, halfway through my career. Um, and the concept of uh, loyalty from uh, employee to employer and from employer to employee uh, was no longer something you could take uh, for granted. And many companies did not want somebody who wanted to stay there forever. They wanted somebody, you know, uh, situationally. And the whole nature of employment uh, uh, changed. And now we seem to be in a very mercenary type of uh, um, situation where uh, you have a bunch of skills uh, and then you seek for conventional uh, or unconventional opportunities that are out there or you create your own opportunities to the best of your ability. Uh, and uh, you had labeled this the gig economy and that's a very good way of looking at it. But um, do you see anything emerging from this or is the best way of dealing with this, you know, you're like a hired gun and, you know, wherever you can lend your skills uh, uh, that won't violate your code, uh, whatever your code happens to be is uh, what you'll be doing. Yes. Yeah, so that's, you're absolutely right with all of that. There was this narrative out there about climbing the corporate ladder. It is very much a fantasy or gone for all but very few now. Um, only if you're working in or like highly lucrative fields, engineering, for example, um, law, perhaps, IT, perhaps, uh, and have secured, you know, permanent employee, uh, and this, are you guaranteed or that you could have like a decent something similar to that? or be able to, like, jump every 10 years steadily up. But even in mm -hmm. those professions, um, I'm sure it's not as simple, <clears throat> especially in IT, because Silicon Valley, unfortunately, we've learned with all their problems with monopoly uh, and all the protests that have come out about privacy, they're not good employers. Uh, and they're not very moral about the way they look at things in the first place. So even though well, he probably isn't so secure. So <clears throat> absolutely, the idea is to be the best hired gun you can be on some level, you know, which means, you know, constantly keeping abreast of what's going on in the industry that you're in, honing your skills, seeking recognition for your skills, networking, marketing, you know, and, it's, and this is difficult. You know, I'm not going to lie and say, oh, it's so easy. It's an easy transfer. Like, it is, one, an absolutely different mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, I put in my 9 to 5, I go home, I watch TV or play golf until uh, I go to sleep and then I do it all over again. It's very different, uh, for example, nowadays. And it does require a very entrepreneurial mindset, but at the same time, you're not exactly, you know, like Walt Disney here creating like a whole new company, and you're not really, you know, unless you're really hiring people and scaling quickly, you're not really a small businessman either. So right. it is like an interesting 
medium that way, in the gray area. And I myself am in that gray area as a writer, you know, entrepreneurial, quite often with my own website, excelsiorcoms.com, uh, with no mm-hmm. E in Excelsior, you know, um, to promote my own writing. You know, it's very common and very easy to make your own website now, and it's very good to do so. So I definitely recommend people do that. And, you know, the people should subsequently, you know, seek to network with people in their industry, always get to uh, learn things, you know, be friendly with people, try to make good connections, and seek this. You know, like ideally, though, one shouldn't think of it as a zero-sum game where if the guy next to me loses, I win, or if he wins, I lose. You know, maybe he can bring me along, recommend me for a project. <coughs> Excuse me. If he can okay. otherwise somehow help me along the way, and we can help each other, and we become friends. That is the ideal, uh, and that is what we seek to build on. You know, that sort of like mutual self-interest, you know, what is known in labor circles as solidarity. Awesome. And on that positive note, uh, we will wrap up the AWA report and I will play a song. And if you can provide me with the telephone number of your guest, I will uh, connect them during our break. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you, Dan. You will.
top of her Sings the mystery of the all-expanding universe Trust that brain behind your eyes To carve a space for us within the universal mind And if it's up to us to bring some balance back Let it not be said, it's courage that we And welcome back to the Elysium Project. I'm Hercules Invictus. Tonight is Options and Opportunities. And our next segment is Common Bonds, hosted by Dan Uloa. Today, his guest is Brad Bannon. And I welcome both of you to the segment. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I will now pass the scepter to uh, Dan, and I'll be here engineering. If you need me, just holler. Thank you, Hercules. Great. Welcome, Brad. How are you? Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Good, good. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I was, I'm happy to have you on here. You know, your uh, interesting um, knowledge, you know, always uh, enhances AWA. So how about you uh, tell the audience about yourself? Well, I'm uh, a uh, consultant uh, who uh, polls and designs communication strategies uh, for labor unions, uh, progressive groups, and Democrats. And I've been at this quite a long while. Uh, it's uh, great. had the opportunity over the years to help a lot of great people and organizations. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, how'd you get into this then? Well, uh, I uh, got involved at pol- in politics at a very early age. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in Rhode Island. Uh, my grandfather uh, was uh, a union member and political activist, and uh, he dragged me around to uh, political and labor meetings when I was very young, probably about five or six. And uh, he inspired me to work in politics. Uh, he loved politics. Uh, he loved FDR. He was an FDR Democrat and proud union member. And uh, he instilled that in me, and I've been uh, at it ever since. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. 
then that way. So how would you tell us about some of your more interesting battles then and ideally victories? Well, uh, I've uh, been involved in a lot of uh, interesting and uh, tough campaigns over the years. Uh, I uh, wanted actually one of the more interesting campaigns I worked on, and this was um, back in the about 20 years ago. Uh, I do a lot of work for labor unions, and one of the uh, campaigns I was involved in uh, back uh, when my client was the Massachusetts AFL-CIO, uh, there was a referendum on the uh, Massachusetts ballot that year uh, that would uh, – uh, Massachusetts had and still has a prevailing wage law uh, that meant that uh, uh, businesses had to pay a prevailing wage on uh, state construction projects. And uh, a business group in Massachusetts uh, put a question on the uh, Massachusetts ballot that would eliminate the prevailing wage law and allow businesses uh, who contracted with the, uh, the state to do state construction projects uh, would not have to pay the prevailing uh, business wage uh, anymore, the prevailing labor wage any longer. Uh, so uh, the Massachusetts AFL-CIO hired me to put together a campaign to stop the business effort to eliminate the state uh, prevailing wage law. And it was a tough campaign because business groups, uh, mainly the big construction firms in the state, spent millions of dollars to eliminate the prevailing wage law. And uh, it was a tough campaign. And uh, we started out losing by a large margin uh, but uh, we put together a campaign that wasn't nearly as well-funded uh, as the business group campaign, uh, but did have the support of hundreds of uh, labor union members, thousands of uh, labor union members in Massachusetts and their families, uh, and we were able to stop it dead uh, tracks, even though we were outspent by a considerable margin. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. I like yeah. that. You know, it reminds me and of hearing. Hmm? Yeah, and essentially what we are able to do is we are able to demonstrate uh, to voters in Massachusetts that the prevailing wage law uh, was good for all its, uh, uh, residents and voters, whether they were union members or not, because with the uh, labor prevailing wage law, we essentially uh, acted as a magnet that dra that dra that uh, dragged everybody's wages in the state up, uh, whether or not they were union members. And we were able to use what money we had, and we did have enough money to mount a television uh, campaign. Uh, we managed to convince Massachusetts voters that the prevailing wage. Uh, was uh, good for them, whether they were members or not. Um, and I remember the uh, sponsored uh, campaign uh, was question two on the ballot, and the uh, business groups were able to get out on the ballot. And I remember our slogan for our campaign was question two was bad for you. 
uh, and uh, mm-hmm. we were able to through the day. It was a tough struggle. We were uh, greatly outspent, but uh, we had a great grassroots campaign uh, that was uh, run by uh, different constituent unions across the state, uh, and it made a big difference, and we ended up winning. No, it's great that way. Yeah, I found that it seems like a lot of times that people don't really understand some of the nuances that, you know, union guys, you know, people that follow this are really uh, familiar with, like the idea of prevailing wage law, which is something that the Republicans continually attack over and over again. But, like, a lot of times, like, if you can explain this to people, you know, they do support it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, essentially... What we were able to do was uh, we were able to, uh, you know, to uh, that uh, state prevailing wage boosted everybody's wage, uh, not just union members. Uh, And so uh, we were able to uh, make our case effectively, despite the fact that we didn't have nearly as much money as the business groups. uh, But... uh, we did have to spend on media and the grassroots campaign uh, that we conducted uh, was a great success. Oh, that's great then. Yeah, I always like that uh, type of story. You know, like when I watch TV and ads, you know, it's just like ad after ad. Like I feel like there's definitely like a, what's it called? The law of diminishing returns with those, for example. So, you know, that money oftentimes isn't really well spent. Versus like a good grassroots campaign, you know, talking to people, you know, working that type of thing, you know, activating people who talk to their neighbors, for example, can be much more effective. Uh, Yeah, well, it is. And, you know, talking, you know, again, uh, we made virtue of the fact that there at the time there were about, I think, three or 400,000 union members in Massachusetts. And those union members uh, had families, of course, and we, uh, the labor union members, Commonwealth, uh, went into their communities and did talk to their neighbors and of direct, direct, direct contact between people and their communities, uh, you know, was uh, more effective uh, than the, the millions of dollars of ads that the business groups put. Because you're right, Dan. I mean, the app television advertising does have a numbing effect on people. Uh, they see so many ads, uh, they sort of, uh, you know, ignore them, put them out of their minds. Uh, and uh, direct con- personal contact, voter to voter, union member to um, uh, people who their communities uh, made a big difference in this campaign, and it still does because, uh, you know, again, TV ads have a sort of a numbing effect, and there's nothing that substitutes for person-to-person contact. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the great assets, you know, something, a campaign, you know, that has popular support does have that edge, for example. So it is good that way. It's interesting, though, to think that that type of fight would be so close to Massachusetts. Like, I'd hate to think, like, what that would be, like, in a more, like, swing state. Well, uh, you know, I mean, Mass, you know, that's why many states don't have prevailing wage laws, uh, because the business groups completely dominate. 
Uh, and but it makes different. You know, I mean, one of the big differences in that campaign was the fact that the live of you know three or four hundred thousand union members in the state was severely threatened by this initiative campaign. Uh, and uh, what we were able to do is build on that to build a powerful statewide grassroots organization uh, that both, uh, you know, made personal contact, uh, that established personal contact between union members and the people who lived in, the, in their communities, uh, and also, you know, raise money uh, to counteract the uh, business uh, message. Uh, but, you know, the reality is it really doesn't matter which state in, you're in. Uh, business can, businesses can always raise a lot of money, uh, and uh, it is hard for progressives to counteract that. So, uh, you know, prevailing wage laws are always at threat. doesn't really imagine which state they're in because the business groups in any state can raise a ton of money. Uh, you see all sorts of progressive legislation that's going down to defeat in places like California or Washington State, uh, basically because business groups in those states and from across the nation can raise enough money to get their message across. Uh, and the uh, money that is, uh, you know, the, the money that can come from, uh, you know, organizations fronted and funded by the Koch brothers uh, can make a difference even in progressive states. And the only way to counter that is to build grassroots organizations because that's the only chance you have uh, to counteract the money that comes from uh, the Koch brothers and other business uh, organizations that have tons of dough. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely very true. Yeah, I find it quite annoying that the Koch brothers have their own arm here in New Jersey and that they're doing things, for example. And it's really funny, some of the conservatives I haven't liked for some time, I later found out were connected to their organization, ALEC, uh, American Legislative oh, yeah. Change Council. Yeah, I mean, uh, ALEC's a very mm-hmm. organization. Yeah, it is. But at least, I, I guess, like, the thing is that the good thing is I think there's definitely uh, more knowledge and uh, education, you know, about the nature of Alex, for example. And, you know, it was good, you know, I remember a few years ago in the Obama era that, you know, it did become a little controversial that a lot of major corporations were donating to it. So they did pull out a few of them. So, you know, that was good and effective on some level. But, you know, it is always like the catch on the progressive side that we always do need to build like a massive organization you know, a popular support, you know, and that can be difficult at times. Well, yeah, it can, but, you know, I mean, and, but, and that's why progressives have to take advantage of the one, uh, take, uh, make use of the one advantage we have. And the one advantage we have is people. Uh, and uh, you build a grassroots organization, uh, both uh, to organize like-minded people and also to raise money. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of, you know, I, I don't, re- I can't, I know I've done in my career hundreds of campaigns and I bet you I could count on one hand uh, the campaigns that I've been involved in uh, where we have the financial advantage. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> and it just proves that you know what you if you know what you're doing, uh, you build strong grassroots organizations, people to people organizations. You can defeat big money. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly you know what we believe at AWA, and that's what keeps us going. You know, like the idea of building popular support that these ideas aren't so alien, you know, that conservative, you know, support and like their ideas aren't as widespread, as popular as they'd like you to believe. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, the advantage we have uh, is people and we need to take advantage, you know, put that advantage into play. And, you know, honestly, you know, looking back at the years and the campaigns I've spent on, I'm very proud of the fact that just about all the campaigns um, I won, whether they're for labor or progressive issue groups or Democrats, uh, I've been able to help my clients win these campaigns, even though we were in most cases uh, at a very bad financial advantage. Uh, money isn't the be the be all and end all in politics because I've been involved in too many campaigns where my clients were at a severe financial uh, disadvantage, but we won anyway, and there's a way there are ways to do it. Absolutely. Could you tell us then about like how you've seen like labor issues change then over the years? Well, I think there have been big changes uh, in labor um, over the years. Uh, when I started uh, working, when I started my company, Bannon Communications, uh, I really thought sometimes I was barking up the wrong tree uh, because labor unions were very resistant to change. They were very resistant to using new political technology. Uh, it was very difficult uh, to get unions to poll their own members. Uh, and when I started in this business, uh, labor unions were way behind the curve uh, politically, technologically. Uh, but um, over the years, and, and businesses uh, were much more sophisticated in their use of political tools. Uh, now, fortunately, labor unions have advanced uh, a lot technologically. Uh, over the years, uh, and uh, so it, it's it's much easier for me uh, to get my clients to use the latest political technology now than it was when uh, I first got into this business, uh, because uh, really a lot of later labor unions were stuck in the dark ages of politics and were doing the way politicians and groups worked in the 1950s, uh, mm. but fortunately, you have recognized uh, the need to change, uh, and they have. And part of that's because you have a, a you know a new cohort of young uh, labor leaders, uh, and uh, as union leadership has changed over the years, uh, so has the sophistication of labor unions in the arena and uh, you know you know we can only thank God for that because otherwise we'd be in real tough shape now oh yeah absolutely I think it is one of the things when you look at you know a lot of unions probably were taken off guard when it seemed 
that, you know, a lot of these corporations, you know, they took off the gloves, as it were, around the late 70s, 80s, and, you know, a lot of unions were taken aback by this and, you know, took a long time to respond, quite unfortunately. Yeah, it did. It, it did. You're right. Um, and it took a long you know, it took a long time for labor to respond. Uh, and uh, the business, the business groups were way ahead of the curve technologically. Uh, and, uh, you know, during that period, uh, you know, labor unions were getting their, their, uh, you know, their butt kicked. Um, but again, uh, and unions realized at you know some point that they had to uh, change or die essentially. Uh, and uh, fortunately, the, uh, the unions did change. And again, a lot of that was because the changes in leadership. You had a younger cohort uh, of uh, union leaders who came of age. Uh, they were tired of getting their butts kicked. And they realized if they were going to survive and thrive, they had to, uh, you know, they had to update the way they approached politics. Uh, and they did. No, it's interesting that way to think of, like, the nature of technology and how, you know, that's helped or hurt people. You know, I think of, you know, like, life, the idea of, like, life without the cell phone and email now. I can't imagine, like, running a political campaign in the age of, like, landlines, for example, you know, I and myself have only really been professionally active, you know, in cell phones, you know, when everybody has a cell phone, when you're you're able to call people where they are in, like, a neighborhood or XYZ, for example. So even yep. that, like, technological development versus, like, anything more complicated, I can imagine, you know, the great... Well, you know, it was it was all, you know, I mean... Even before the dawn of social media, there were other things. I mean, labor unions, for example, uh, were came very late to polling. Uh, they came very late to using TV ads. Uh, business groups were polling and, and developing TV ads uh, long before unions did, and it created a you know a, a, a big problem for labor. Uh, but again, fortunately, over the years, uh, union leaders who were being tired of getting their butts kicked uh, basically came to the conclusion: Well, if you're going to beat them, you know, uh, basically, if uh, you're going to beat them, you got to join them in using the up, you know, latest political technology. And you know, and it came. It took a long time for unions to recognize the importance of uh, you know doing electronic media, uh, polling, uh, and we were way behind business groups. But uh, fortunately, uh, leader, labor leaders recognized that if we were going to, you know, if we were going to win, if we were going to stop business, uh, we had to, uh, you know, change with the times, and uh, thankfully we did. Yeah, that is important there to be able to, like, spread the message to people that don't understand these issues. For example, you know, I know people, you know, they worked in restaurants and then they took white collar jobs. So they don't really have that tradition of like labor unions, for example, or, you know, people always want to make like a Jimmy Hoffa joke every so often. So, you know, that hurts the image. yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I mean, I had a much different upbringing. I grew up in a labor household uh, and not only 
household, but a labor household that was very active politically. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that sent me on my way professionally, uh, but also made me realize uh, that most people didn't have that advantage and they did not really understand what unions did uh, and what unions were able to accomplish for their members. Um, and it's still a fight, but it's a fight that uh, we're better at than we were 20 years ago when I first started this uh, sort of thing and working for unions and, and trying to help them compete with well-funded business groups. No, oh, well, you know, it is good then that they are able to compete more, you know, in this age when it seems the gloves really are off on a number of issues, quite unfortunately. So, like, what would you say are, like, some of the biggest, like, labor issues that you fought for, you know, besides, like, prevailing wage then? Uh, well, another issue that uh, I've been involved with uh, with both unions and progressive groups uh, is on health care. Um, during uh, while Barack Obama was president, um, I did a lot of work with unions on health care issues. Um, and, you know, the reality is, you, you know, look, if you look at any national poll that's done today uh, and they ask voters what their priority is, uh, health care is likely to be uh, on top of the list. And that is an issue. Uh, that you that labor unions uh, have to be very active in uh, because it's a big concern of their members. Uh, it is also a big concern of voters. Uh, for example, if you looked at uh, the midterm elections last year, um, a lot of Republicans believe they lost the House of Representatives uh, because uh, they failed to respond uh, to the health care crisis in this country. In fact, the uh, Republican uh, uh, minority leader in the House, uh, Congressman McCarthy, uh, said that uh, he thought the major reason why Republicans lost the House was because Republicans failed to address the health care issue. And there's a lot of evidence uh, that uh, that is true. Uh, For example, if you look at the exit polls uh, done of voters who voted in the midterms, in uh, 2018, they asked those voters what their uh, what issues drove their vote, and number one uh, was uh, health care, where I think 41% of the midterm voters said that their biggest uh, issue priority was health care. And if you looked at the 41% who said health care was their big issue, they voted for Democratic uh, congressional candidates by a three-to-one margin. Um, it's also interesting that uh, uh, midterm elections, I'm sure you and your listeners uh, remember that the president was trying to whip up voter hysteria of this uh, caravan of immigrants that was supposedly coming to the United States from through Mexico from Central America. <laughs> oh, yeah, the caravan. And uh, the Republicans tried to whip up voters to a frenzy on that. Um, but it's pretty clear if you look at the exit polls, that was a pretty dismal failure. 
because by, you know, again, 41% of uh, midterm voters said health care was their big issue uh, compared to only 20% who said immigration was their big issue. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, the Republican attempt to drive voters in hysteria about this, you know, mystical caravan that was headed to the United States <laughs> to rake and, rake and pillage uh, was a scare tactic designed to get uh, to distract voters uh, from issues like health care where the Republicans didn't have a response. And, you know, it's interesting now we've been arguing about health care at the federal level now ever since Barack Obama became president 10 years ago. And despite that, the Republicans have never offered their own health care plan. And uh, that cost them dearly in the midterm elections in 2018. Um, And it will cost them dearly again. Uh, next year during the presidential elections because the still uh, have not developed their own health care plan. Recently, I read that President Trump said that the Republicans wouldn't unveil their plan until after the 2020 presidential elections. Um, and um, I thought to myself, well, good luck with that. By the time you get around to doing it, no one will care more because the Democrats will control all the machinery uh, in Washington. Uh, but uh, I've been doing a lot of work over the years, ever you know, the last 10 years for unions and other issue groups on health care. And that's still a really big vote, vote of priority. And the Republican failure to deal with the issue and come up with their own plan uh, is cost, cost them dearly and will cost them dearly again next year, in my opinion. Yes, it's really funny that way because, of course, as some people might know, uh, what basically is Obamacare, like the idea that we're going to subsidize these corporations, was the Republican plan in 1993 or so when Clinton failed to pass health care reform. And they haven't really come up with another plan since. (laughs) Well, yeah, and the reason they haven't come up with a plan is very simple is you can't come up with an adequate uh, health national health care plan that doesn't have federal involvement. There's no way of getting around it. And Republicans, are, they don't want to, uh, you know, they don't want to come out for any program that, uh, that has substantial federal involvement. But you with a health care plan, unless you do have federal involvement, and so the Republicans have never able to get around that problem. And, uh, well, again, in the midterm, it probably cost them the House of Representatives. And next year, it may uh, the White House. Knock on wood. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's very, you know, it's very dangerous. I mean, it's uh, if you look at the Democratic presidential campaign and, you know, candidates, all 20, whatever them there are these days, they're all talking about health care because de- Democrats realize that voters want drastic care in the, in the uh, drastic change in the health care system. And uh, Republicans, you know, Republicans are aware of the danger. They just can't do anything about it. And uh, they will pay the price. 
So that's the question then. What do you think really should be done about health care? Well, um, most voters are concerned about health care because they realize if there's a serious illness in the family, uh, it could bankrupt them. Um, because it happens all the time. Uh, uh, Americans, it's routine for Americans, sadly, to go bankrupt uh, because a family member comes with a serious illness. And they, you know, American, most Americans, middle class Americans, working families don't have the capacity to pay for a uh, serious health care emergency. And, you know, that's why there is so much public support, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, a, you know, essentially uh, to expand Medicare. Uh, Medicare is and always has been a very popular program, even uh, as 1965 when it was uh, passed by the Democratic Congress and signed by President Johnson uh, and was way of dealing with the health care prices is just to expand um, a program that is already working well and very popular, and that's Medicare, and that's where Medicare for all comes from. Not only is it a popular program, but uh, Medicare is run a lot more efficiently and less uh, than private health care plans. Uh, if, uh, if someone uh, if pays a monthly premium every month to a private health insurance company, um, about a third of those premiums go not don't go to care, but it goes to uh, profit for the uh, health insurance companies uh, and uh, administrative costs. And you could eliminate all that money if you went to Medicare because it's a program that works very efficiently and effectively and would cost a lot less than the current private health care uh, system of insurance we have in the United States. And that's why eventually we will have um, an expanded Medicare program that covers everybody uh, because not only do Americans need coverage, uh, but Medicare is much more efficient and cost effective than private health uh, care insurance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is something that we have discussed on this show, and we have found a little uh, interesting fact that, you know, some small business people actually do support Medicare for All because they realize, you know, if they can't really afford it, you know, what's the better solution? It's really to have Medicare for All, where it's not going to be an expense yeah. subsequently for all these small businesses to, you know, pay for health insurance. Well, a good example of that, you're right, Dan, and a good example of that is the auto industry. Uh, the auto industry would love to have a national health care system. Uh, they have calculated that one of the reasons uh, they're losing market share uh, to the Japanese uh, automobile industry is that Japan has a national health care system. And if you General Motors... Uh, or Ford, uh, and if you look at the sticker price of a GM or Ford car, about $1,500 of that sticker price goes to uh, uh, health care 
that uh, GM and Ford uh, pay uh, uh, towards health insurance costs. Um, and they figure if it was, there was a Medicare pro- program, uh, they could pe- compete more effectively with the Japanese because they wouldn't have to add $1,500 onto the sticker price to pay for their employees' health care. So there are a large number of corporations that would like a national system, and um, somebody we're going to have it. I, I don't know when exactly, but it's just a matter of time. Uh, because if we don't do something significantly significant to change the system, the whole system will collapse. It's on the verge of collapsing now. Yes, it really is important then to like really push that fact that small businesses are for it, that General Motors and Ford are for it, because it is an issue. You know, people start saying, "Oh, it's socialist, it's socialist," as if as if like this is like what they do, for example. That well, you know, well, you know, uh, you know, a a famous political scientist once said that Americans are philosophically conservative and operational, operationally liberals. And you know, the reality is, you have a lot of conservatives um, who would be horrified if you tried to dismantle Medicare, for example, or Social Security. And they're both socialist programs. Um, and a lot of people who were horrified of socialism um, would be horrified if you tried to mantle, uh, dismantle uh, major programs like Medicare and Social Security, which are socialism any way you look at it. Um, but, you know, and Americans are incredibly pragmatic. Americans aren't into ideological labels they don't care if something's liberal or conservative or socialist or capitalist. They just want programs that work. And that's why Medicare is a very popular system, even though it's clearly socialism at, at work. Uh, and Americans are pragmatic. They don't care if it's liberal or conservative. They just, they just want it if it worked. And, you know, that's why we will have a comprehensive health, national health care system in this country someday, because we already have a socialist health care program for seniors. If you're 65 and over, you have you enjoy a socialist health care system. If you're under 65, you have you're covered. Uh, you have a capitalist health care system and the two systems can't and won't coexist. And someday you will have a national uh, comprehensive health care system uh, because Americans, in the last analysis, care about labels. They just care whether it works or not. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, if you solve the problem, you know, like the nature of an ideologue somewhere doesn't really matter. It'll be interesting, though, you know, like the, the devil's in the details. Cause I think one of the good things, at least, you know, about the Affordable Care Act for all its faults, was that it was able to build a broad coalition in support of it. Now, the American Medical Association, you know, the Trade Association for Doctors, for example, which most famously blocked Harry Truman's healthcare efforts in 48, got behind Obama's efforts. So it's important to really, like, keep those things in mind, like the idea of, like, working with some of these industry groups that might block it, for example, and start saying, oh, we're going to get between you and your doctor that way or they'll get between you and your doctor or something similar 
Because that is well, like yeah, one of the big boogie lines they said last time. Yeah, they have. But, you know, the problem uh, with those kind of attacks on Obamacare is that right now it's private and health insurance companies that are getting between people and their doctors. Uh, yeah, you know, they won't, they won't cover a lot of the care uh, that middle-class Americans need. Um, and, you know, I remember, you know, going back to that uh, exit poll from the midterms last year, uh, uh, you know, not only was health care the big issue, uh, but a majority, a very large majority of Americans uh, said that the health care system in this country is in a major crisis. And, uh, again, it is inevitable we're going to have a national comprehensive uh, health care system because we have one for seniors already. And eventually, uh, and Americans want the system that's worked well for seniors uh, to be extended to everyone. And it will. I mean, it's just a matter of time. I always uh, saw Obamacare as a major first step uh, in uh, towards comprehensive health care system, and it was, and it will be someday. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting to see it that way. Ideally, more and more people see it that way. You know, yeah, I myself have had, you know, the health insurance companies get between me and some specialists I've had to see over the years. So it is quite difficult. Well, yeah, and because, you know, private health care insurance uh, companies are great at, uh, you know, getting your monthly premium out of your wallet or checkbook every month, uh, but they're not very good at actually providing you with the kind, with the kind of services they need to live healthy lives. And that's why most Americans think the healthcare systems in crisis, and that's why the present. Uh, system of private insurance for people under 65 will collapse of weight eventually, and it won't be too long. Quite unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny. I just had to deal with my own health insurance company and pay a premium. So they had one of these surveys call me, and, I'm, and they're trying to, like, really get to, like, the nature of, like, oh, how was the customer service? And I'm like, the worker was fine. The nature of the company is horrible. Put that in your box. Yeah, and, you know, the job of private insurance companies is not to provide health insurance. Uh, the job of health insur- private health insurance companies is to deny you coverage. That's where they make their money. Uh, and that's why so many Americans are dissatisfied with the present, uh, you know, private health insurance uh, system uh, because it doesn't do – Americans are paying for health care in all they get. Uh, for their very expensive monthly premiums is denial of health care. Yeah, it really is quite true quite often, unfortunately. But changing the subject uh, a little, what uh, opportunities or threats do you see in the future for, you know, labor and allied progressive groups? Uh, Well, I think, you know, one of the big changes I've seen um, over the years, um, is that uh, uh, when I first started working uh, with, and I, you know, I've worked with both labor unions and progressive issue groups over the years. Uh, they back 
when I started doing this kind of work, they went their separate ways. Uh, but now one of the big changes uh, you see um, is that um, a lot of the unions, uh, labor unions and progressive issue groups do a lot better job of working together, whereas 20 years ago, a lot of times they used to work uh, at uh, cross purposes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think one of the things uh, you're going to see more in the future is uh, I think you'll see uh, progressive issue groups and labor unions work a lot better uh, and a lot more closely together. That's not something they um, always did very well. And, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the future for a number of reasons, because uh, labor unions um, are now using political techniques and technology. Um, they're working a lot closer, I think, with uh, progressive issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, America's changing a lot to the better. Um, I think um, and it's partly because of generational change. Um, you know, if you look at national polls, the people who are most resistant to change uh, and in favor of conservatism uh, tend to be seniors. Um, the people who are most progressive and open to change um, are young people, um, millennials, uh are now the largest potential voting block in the nation. And uh, they are open to new ideas. They're very open to progressive solutions. Uh, and I think for that reason, things are going to change much better politically. Um, Republicans are in danger of um, making themselves distinct. Um, young voters, um, are uh, very liberal, and as a bigger part of the electorate, uh, they're going to bring along their their liberalism, their support uh, for uh, racial harmony, for uh, more progressive uh, issues with them. Uh, and uh, I think the future, it's things are painful now. But I think they'll progressively get better, and I mean that in both a literal and a figurative sense, uh, because the American electorate is changing. It's becoming younger. It's becoming uh, 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 more minority, and uh, those offer uh, positive solutions. Yeah, it's very really true. You know, I was listening to somebody, and they were talking about cannabis reform. And they were saying, for example, that proponents of cannabis reform, they just have to wait out the opponents and eventually will win. Well, that, there's some truth to that. And, you know, the same thing is true for um, uh, support for uh, legal marijuana and um, pro-choice uh, positions um, are growing every uh every year and the same thing for gay rights and that's because you have um, a younger group coming into the electorate uh, that is very progressive 
and you know, the, honestly, uh, we will become a more progressive society um, racially and in terms of issues like health care and abortion and gay rights and uh, uh, cannabis uh, because the American population is changing. Uh, and we're moving towards a more progressive society. And if I was a Republican or a conservative, I'd be very, very worried uh, because uh, things are not in our direction. Um, demography is destiny. And if that's true, uh, the destiny of the Republican Party um, in the next generation is oblivion. <laughs> Well, you know, I really do hope so. You know, people said the same things about them in 08, and that unfortunately did not happen. But you're definitely right about the future. You know, that's why here at AWA, you know, we do understand how a lot of these issues are, you know, intersectional, as people say uh, in the movement, that, you know, um, discrimination against, you know, gay rights, you know, that's a labor issue. You know, racism, you know, is often... You know, dealt with, you know, and often uh, combined with, you know, issues of economic inequality as well. And that cannabis, for example, as well, can be a great source of employment and the creation of middle class jobs when that seems to be exceedingly difficult nowadays. And the source of union jobs uh, here in New Jersey, at least. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd like to tell people that uh, support for cannabis. Uh, for legal marijuana is that is an all-time high, um, and it is, and that's true for a lot of progressive issues, and it's really because of the way it's changing. Um, you know, the millennials in terms of population are now the single biggest uh, uh, age group in the nation, and millennials are incredibly uh, progressive and liberal. And they're going to fundamentally change American society and make it more progressive. Um, another demographic change, and I think this frightens a lot of people, is the U.S. Census Bureau has estimated by 2044, which is, you know, not that far along away, um, by 2044, um, uh, there'll be, uh, the United States will be majority non-white. And I think a lot of the current racial conflict is that a lot of people, especially older people, are very threatened by the racial changes in society, and they're fighting a desperate rearguard action to make sure it doesn't happen. But the, rea but the reality is that demography is destiny. This country is changing whether people want it to or not, and that's going to make this um, a much different society we'll all be living in. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen, unfortunately, those sorts of issues before where, you know, those of British-born descent didn't want the Irish Catholics in, you know, and then, you know, Irish Catholics didn't want, and others didn't want Italians in and didn't see them as quote-unquote white. And, you know, nowadays, you know, these things seem a little silly. And ideally, you know, some of the issues we're dealing with now will seem silly in the, in the future. Well, I think, the I same think they way. will, Dan. I think doing and the biggest divide in this country, um, you know, there's a clear racial divide between whites and minorities. But the other big divide in this country is between uh, millennials uh, and uh, senior citizens. Senior citizens are very conservative. Uh, millennials are liberal. Uh, and uh, I mean, 
American society is changing whether people want it to change or not. I mean, Donald Trump and his base can hold their breath until they uh, turn blue, but American society is going to change whether they like it or not. And uh, that's why I think there's so much conflict now because uh, people are very resistant to the change, but they, you know, they can slow change, but they can't stop it. And this is going to be a much different society. And I think a better and more progressive society. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's certainly interesting in that fashion that a lot of these seniors and older individuals seem to have a bad reading of history of, like, the ideal of, like, the 50s or something similar. That kind of takes out the context of, you know, like, the victories at the labor movement, for example, and a lot of then liberals, you know, fought that then, you know, was able to create, you know, a great prosperous society at the time. Uh, yeah, and you know, all you have to do is look at the numbers from the uh, 2016 presidential election. Uh, millennials uh, voted by a you know a two to one margin for Hillary Clinton. Um, on the other hand, senior citizens, a major, clear majority of senior citizens, uh, supported Donald Trump. Um, so there's definitely a generational conflict going on. Um, and uh, it's a clash between younger progressives and older conservatives, and uh, you can't, you know, you, you can't change demography. Uh, and the destiny of this country is headed uh, in a direction where it's going to be a much better and different society uh, in 10 or 20 years than it is now. You know, I really and, do enjoy the idea that my generation of millennials is headed in the right direction that way. But I feel that, like, back in the day, people may have may not have said the same thing about baby boomers, that all oh, the youth of, like, the 60s, 70s, oh, they're going to make things better. We're, we're headed towards a better era. And then we got Reagan and HW. Well, yeah, and, you know, th- there's a big difference politically between baby boomers and millennials. Now, I'm a baby boomer, um, and baby boomers uh, were had a much different upbringing than millennials did. Um, baby boomers grew up um, under the shadow of the Vietnam War, um, and of Watergate and the assassinations of both Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King Jr., um, they developed an approach to politics that is was very confrontational. And the biggest, and you know, that's why I think our politics is so divisive now because. It's been dominated by baby boomers for the last generation, and baby boomers by nature are very confrontational. Millennials, however, were raised a lot differently. Uh, Millennials believe in cooperation rather than confrontation. Uh, And uh, millennials don't like division like baby boomers do. They like cooperation. And uh, I think it's going to make it a different society as millennials can become the dominant force in American politics. And on that note, we have to wrap up uh, tonight's uh, segment. 
uh, to be continued. You're always welcome to come back, uh, Brad. Uh, thank you for a very optimistic uh, um, vision of the future. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on the day, on the show, Dan. And, you know, I am optimistic, and I think we are going to have a much better society. It's, you know, we're going through birth pain now, but uh, things will get uh, well, things will get better. And um, thanks for having me on, and I hope I can join you again sometime. And how can yeah, folks you for uh, enter your world? Okay. Uh, contact information? Uh, yeah. Uh, my, uh, if anybody has any further questions, my email is brad, B-R-A-D, at Bannon, B-A-N-N-O-N-C-R dot com. That's Brad at BannonCR dot com. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon, B-R-A-D-B-O-N, and I'd be glad to answer any questions that any of your listeners have. And thank you again. Thank you, Dan, for uh, pulling together this episode. This was awesome. And uh, is there anything you'd like to close the segment with? You know, I just want to thank Brad for his analysis, for his experience, um, for sharing that here on the podcast and, you know, for, uh, you know, sharing these thoughts here in terms of, like, the analysis of uh, demographics. And, you know, I do enjoy uh, the idea that the future will be better than it is today. So we do hope for the better future, and we work towards that. Thanks again, Dan, and thanks again, Brad. Uh, and to all our listeners, we're going to take a brief break uh, by listening to Brand Kondorian's King of Dreams, and then we will be back with David Parker. Ever wake up for no good reason 
And welcome to tonight's final segment. I'm Hercules Invictus. You are listening to the Elysium Project. Uh, tonight's overall topic is options and opportunities, and now we're entering the Athenaeum. Now, for those who don't know uh, what an Athenaeum is, I will briefly explain. Classical and Hellenistic antiquity had its local Athenaeums and such famous institutions as the libraries in Alexandria, Pergamum, and Celsus. The library has grown beyond its archaic royal and religious roots to meet the ever-changing needs of humanity's unfolding development. Libraries continue to serve as vital cultural hubs of learning and leisure in our local communities and in our emerging global culture in the virtual, virtual world online. Some of our Age of Heroes initiatives, most notably the Mythic Adventure Program, have been hosted by libraries and have many of our workshops and cultural study groups. Athenaeum focuses on the reinvention of local libraries and other community-based learning centers in this age of information. Now, tonight's guest is David Parker, and David wrote an excellent book, on procrastination, and uh, now he's working on presentations on depression, and uh, he can illuminate us on how to deal with these uh, states of mind and better futures for ourselves and others. Greetings and welcome, David. How are you? I'm fine, Hercules. Thank you. It's nice to be on your show again. Hello, everyone. It's nice to have you on again, and uh, uh, I was thrilled after our last uh, conversation and how far you had gotten, 
some things that were uh, ideas floating around in your mind uh, during your last interview. You've taken action and put together presentations and are uh, you giving talks about them. So uh, I'm very eager to see all these lead to your uh, next book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. In fact, maybe at the end, if there's time, I can mention where I'm going to be speaking uh, next week in Midtown Manhattan. So maybe if there's time, I'll be able to uh, mention that. Well, well, how about we make the time? Uh, You can talk about it first before we start, and then if there's time at the end again. Well, you know what? Uh, Thank you. Uh, For anyone who's going to be in Manhattan uh, next uh, Wednesday, uh, I'm going to be at uh, B&H Photo's event space, which is at B&H Photo on uh, 8th, no, 9th Avenue and 34th Street. Uh, from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m., I'll be giving a, uh, giving a talk on uh, how to stop procrastinating and how to, uh, how to achieve your goals. So that's going to be on next Wednesday, the 31st of July, at 1 p.m. at B&H Photos event space, uh, which is at B&H Photo on the second floor at 9th Avenue and 34th Street. And for those of you who aren't in Manhattan or in New York or can't make it, it's going to be live uh, on the Internet. So if you just go to B&H Photos website and look for their event space, that's E-V-E-N-T space, S-P-A-C-E, uh, you look up the uh, schedule. They have lots and lots of different talks, mostly about lenses and computers and things they sell. They don't normally have a, a motivational self-help speaker, but uh, they, uh-huh. apparently they were impressed by my book, and I'm very thankful. So I will be the speaking uh, there, and it will be uh, uh, webcasted live on uh, on uh, the BNH uh, Photo uh, website. Again, that's Wednesday at 1 p.m. Thanks for letting me uh, mention that. And uh, if you send me the link, I will post it when you're giving the workshop, and this way people on my timeline can uh, access it. I will certainly, most certainly do that. Thank you. Your book is very much needed, uh, and I know at the – uh, Creskill Public Library, whenever I tell them the things that are upcoming and I mention you in your book, uh, the people say, procrastination? Ooh, I should come. <laughs> I suffer from uh, procrastination. Uh, and uh, although that is not one of my uh, um, things that I wrestle with at this particular point in my life, uh, a lot of people do talk about how uh, they procrastinate and uh, uh, find themselves not doing anything. And your book is exceptional because you wrestled with it and then found a very simple technique uh, for getting you past uh, being paralyzed by it. Would you care to share a little bit of your story for the folks who didn't hear you absolutely, on last Absolutely, absolutely. Well, hi, everyone. I'm David Parker. I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I suffered all my life with uh, severe depression. And uh, during a bad experience when I was living in London about 15 years ago, I was married and I was actually divorcing my then wife. And uh, I I was really in a very, very bad depression because I was living in a foreign country. I was not working. Uh, I was very, very deeply depressed. I was separated from friends and family, going through a very rough time. And I recalled the advice that a friend once gave me. He said, whenever you feel really bad, 
carry a little notebook, carry a little spiral notebook with you and a pen at all times and write your feelings down because that will take the power away from your your low feelings. And, you know, son of a gun, it worked. I was never never a writer. And my friend had told me that years and years previous to to when I was living in London, but I remembered it and I started doing it. And I took to writing like a duck to water. I started writing in the book every day. In fact, I would write so much that I started putting the date uh, first, you know, so that I knew like what day I was uh, writing, you know, so that when I review the pages, I would uh, I would see, uh, you know, when I had written it. And I started carrying this notebook with me everywhere and then started to use it for a second purpose. I started to use the margins of the pages for to-do notes and reminders. And then a funny thing happened. I started, like, let's say, you know, today is Wednesday. So this is being recorded on Wednesday. And let's say that on on uh that on 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 during that period of time i looked back on the pages to say how was i feeling last wednesday or how was i feeling last week uh this day so i'd look back and suddenly i'd start seeing these reminders these notes that i had written saying you know buy a concert ticket or or get groceries or do the laundry or pay this bill or do something and I'd see these reminders, and I'd say, darn, why didn't I take care of that? And darn, why didn't I take care of that? And mm-hmm. I would see these things constantly. And then I would, every time I saw them, I started to eventually notice a couple of crucial things. The first was, just because I saw them didn't mean that I did them. But I would curse myself, and I'd say, why didn't I take care of that? I didn't take care of it the second or the third or the fourth time. That I that I saw it, but then I started to notice uh, an effect, a psychological effect. Every time I would see one of these untaken care of tasks, I would notice my feelings, my internal, my internal internal guidance system, my self-esteem would go to the basement. I would suddenly feel low, and depressed, nervous, anxious. I would feel terrible, and. This happened over and over and over again, like clockwork. Every time I'd see one of these untaken care of tasks, I would see, see, I would feel like, why didn't I take care of that? And then I'd feel, I'd feel like low. And I started to realize something. Wow, maybe there's a connection between my my untaken care of tasks and my low feelings, because you know that's what science is you know i'm not a scientist and i want to uh-huh. mention i'm not a psychologist i'm not a social worker i have no i have no real you know degrees other than an associate's degree from a community college here in brooklyn but you know we all know from like that seventh grade science class you know if you if you toss you toss a ball into the air it'll come down if you toss it again mm-hmm. it comes down it never get, it never stays in the air right it always comes right. down, and that's science. You're repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again, and even like even with the same conditions, sometimes you vary the conditions, and the ball keeps coming down, and you say, hey, you know what? There's this thing. It's called gravity. You know, it's a constant. And there's a kind of gravity for people who are depressed like me that whenever I 
write down a task and then I don't do it. When I procrastinate, I start to feel low. And it was from there that I got the spark that it was like, you know what, come hell or high water, I'm going to overcome my procrastination. Like if there's if there's one thing I do in my life, I'm going to stop procrastinating. And so I set about for a year trying to come up with a method to overcome procrastination. And finally, I did. Awesome. I came up with a method that works for me. And as you know from reading the book, it's called mm-hmm. the JOT method, J-O-T. It means just one task. And the reason it's called just one task, J-O-T, the JOT method, is because if you're a bad procrastinator the way I was, a real habitual procrastinator, what I call a human ostrich, and why do I call procrastinators human ostriches because we stick our head in the ground when we need to take action so i would procrastinate on so many different things that whenever i had free time instead of taking action i would feel instantly overwhelmed i would feel terrible i would feel like i don't know what to deal with first so mm-hmm. and then I then I would start diverting my attention. I'd say, you know what? I'm just going to put the TV on to see what's on TV later, and then I'll shut it off and I'll get to work. And of course, I didn't shut the TV till it was bedtime. So I could I could delay or or divert from action even by taking action or by taking you know I could. I would sleep a lot being a depressed person. I used to call that taking a snooze cruise. And oh. I came up with all kinds of excuses. I also used to smoke pot a lot. I'm not telling people, I'm not trying to be righteous and say, don't, you know, don't do this or don't do that. But, you know, if you really want to avoid responsibility, smoking pot really, really, really can work. In fact, it worked against me. It worked so well. So when I overcame my procrastination through my jot method after practicing it for a year, I said, you know what? I feel so much better about myself now that I'm taking action and now that I'm making decisions and my place looks nicer and I'm paying my bills on time. You know what? I'm going to write a self-help book. And that's what I did. And that's why I called my book, The More You Do, the better you feel, how to overcome procrastination and live a happier life, which is available on Amazon and it's also available via my website, David Parker Author, that's A U T H O R, David Parker Author.com. So that, Hercules, is in a nutshell what my book is about. My book basically in one line is about the relationship between procrastination, depression, and better self-esteem. I hope I didn't run on too long. No, that that is awesome. And it was very well and powerfully uh, said. Uh, and uh, um, it's brilliant. You, you, you found yourself in a particular state of mind, and it took you a year to get out of it and to uh, do it at will. And then you shared what you found, and it's a brilliantly simple solution. Thank uh, you. 
is you know pretty much what folks who accomplish things do. They write lists and they go down the list and they know that uh, you know they're not going to finish everything on the list. So you just do as many things on the list as, as you can, and you can only yeah, focus that's, one thing at a time. So that's right, the best but, way to do it. But but remember, for the habitual procrastinator, a multi-item to-do list causes fear, anxiety, right. and dread. So what the procrastinator needs to do is focus on J-O-T, just one task. And I'll even give it away. The way it works is this. You write down one task. I don't care if you've got a thousand and one things that you need to take care of. You write down one task and then you do it. You don't make a cup of tea. You don't call your Aunt Tilly in Toledo. You don't put the TV on. You do the task. You have to write down a simple, doable task, something like put put that DVD away or wipe the top of that kitchen table or, you know, even if it comes down to you have a sink full of dishes, you can write down clean one spoon. Now, that might sound funny because if you say, you no, know what, no, if no. there's a whole whole sink load of dishes and utensils you mean Mr. Parker I should write down clean one spoon then go clean the spoon and then you know put you know scrub it and then rinse it and then and then put the put the spoon in its place and then dry off and then go back to the piece of paper and then well the third part I didn't mention about the the last part about the job method is you put a line through it you put mm-hmm. a line through what you did because you you stare at it and you say, good, I did that. And, yes, you can do that. If you're immobilized by procrastination, and there are people right now who are listening to this and their heads are nodding, yep, that's me, or yep, that's my wife, or yep, that's my girlfriend, or that's my mom, or that's my cousin, or sometimes I've had people say, yep, that's my boss. Mm-hmm. People, You wouldn't believe how many people have uh, have bought a copy of my book for their boss. There's a lot of I nice bosses. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of nice bosses out there who have dedicated staffs who want their bosses to do better and to, to live a happier life. So that's basically what it's all about. You know, if you need the help, sometimes you have to take the action. And if if doing one spoon and and then drying yourself off and then writing down, now do a second spoon. And that's sometimes, you know what, when I do, if I have a big meal and I have a lot of utensils in the sink, I still get a little overwhelmed. And you know what I say to myself, Hercules? What? I, I say, you know what, I'm going to start with the spoons. I'm going to do all the spoons, then I'm going to do the forks, and then I do the forks. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to do the knives. And then once I've done that, now I've got the utensils out of the way. Now I'm going to start with the dishes. I do the dishes, and then if I have any pots and pans or any big utensils, I take care of those. And then I clean out the sink, scrub it down, rinse it out, and I say, yeah. Now that used to, in fact, in my book, I have... I don't know if you read it in the copy I gave you, but I have a co- I have a uh, section called Science Experiments in the <laughs> Kitchen, 
If you re- it sounds like you're laughing because you may have read that. And, um, uh, yes, it's been a while since I read the book, and so I don't remember all the details. But I remember well, one, you have one, a very quirky you, and illuminating sense of humor. So uh, thank I, I you. Well, uh, yeah, quirky and illuminating sense of humor. I think my ex-wife would agree on that. But uh, but anyway, well, she said all kinds of stuff, but that's okay. But uh, I'm just joking. Uh, but when I was at my worst, I once I once had every single utensil in my sink, in my kitchen sink, in my small studio apartment at the time. I had it all, everything in there, along with a bunch of dirty water. And one night, I came, I came home from work. And it was a cold November night, and I came home, and I looked at that smelly sink with the dirt and everything, and I, it was just horrible. And instead of dealing with it, I put my coat back on, went to the 7-Eleven, and I bought paper plates and plastic forks and knives and spoons, and I, and I had dinner using those. And it was then the next day that I really had a mess on my hands. So I had to buy those, you know, those really long kitchen gloves that go up to your elbows. And I had to scrub down everything with like scouring powder to get them clean. And I was all the while saying to me, to myself, excuse me, saying, what's wrong with me? Why do I do things like this? Why do I live this way? And I can't tell you how many people I've I've spoken to at, at health shows where I've sold my book and People identify, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, before Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody knew how many people are alcoholics. And later we found out how many people, you know, how bad drug addiction is and how many people suffer with that. And I'm telling you, even though I'm not a doctor, I am telling you, there is a relationship in, for some people, a relationship between procrastination and depression, and that's why I decided to call my book "The More You Do, The Better You Feel." It's so true, and the subtitle is "How to Overcome Procrastination and Live a Happier Life." And you have been aggressively and uh, very uh, again, you're you're uh, you're you're quirky like me, and you're a very unique uh, uh, type of person. Uh, you've been uh, assertively and aggressively promoting uh, the book that you've written, and you're already starting on your next work. So uh, even though you've confessed on your last interview that, like everybody else, you're human, so sometimes you, know, uh, uh, you go through periods of uh, darkness, uh, you're attempting now to get to the root of that, as you did with procrastination, and, and find a way of getting past that. And that is admirable. Uh, and uh, very heroic. So I you know, I think it. everybody, I think everybody has their own burden. I think like we put on, we put on as nice clothes as we can, and we put on as nice a face as we can. And some people call it being positive, and some people call it being professional. But the truth is, is that you know we're all going through something. I have a friend right now right. who's who's very sick and and I we've said our goodbyes to each other uh several times because you know he has COPD which is uh the modern modern uh, word for uh emphysema and uh, and I'm going to lose him and I'm very sad in fact my book is dedicated to him his name is Dan Buckley and 
you know, we we know that it's it's you know it is what it is. So everyone has something going on that's that that makes us feel weak and powerless. And and sometimes you know what? Sometimes the best thing you could do is keep your home clean. Sometimes the act of, in fact, in my book, I I I have the line that I I heard someone else say this once that. House cleaning is a mood changer, and it's so true. You know, if I want to get a, a big task done, sometimes the best thing I could do is just start a small task, just start some house cleaning, and it's amazing what gets done. That That is very true. And uh, actually, there have been a few books published on that, just that alone, the cleaning up your house uh, is good for you. Um, and uh, I saw them in Target. I was in Target earlier today. And I looked at their uh, bestsellers uh, shelf, and uh, there were, I think, two different books just on that topic alone. So uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it really, really works. It really works. Now, for somebody who is uh, uh, suffering from procrastination and uh, they're stuck in depression, um, aside from uh, reading your book and uh, trying out the JOT method, uh, what else would you recommend uh, for them? Well, I first want to remind everyone I'm not a doctor, so please, you know, if you're on medication, don't make any changes to your medication unless, you know, you speak to your physician first, okay? Right. Because I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a social worker. I am a big believer in that exercise Exercise works against depression. In fact, here's another another thing that I'll another line I'll give you from my book, which is move a muscle, change a thought. When we if you're feeling very, very low, one of the best things you could do is get active. You know what? Depression hates exercise. Depression hmm. really hates exercise. You know, there's an old expression, you can't laugh and cry at the very same time. You really can't. You really can't. It's very hard to laugh and cry at the same exact moment, almost impossible. And it's really hard to be depressed when you're moving around, like doing aerobic exercise. Right. So if you're having, if you're, if you're depressed, if you can... Of course, it's very important to check with your doctor to see that you are, you know, capable of exercising and you're not going to get hurt. And we're not telling you to overdo anything while you're, you know, uh, exercising. But, you know, it, it just might help to exercise and get moving and see if that helps you. I find that exercise is a phenomenal thing. Um, my my attention is kind of diffuse. I guess you could call me attention deficit disordered. Mm. Uh, and uh, I read a few great books by Tom Hartman that helped me reframe how I viewed that. Uh, and then I learned how to use it as an asset. Um, it's uh, kind of like the type of uh, brain that people had before we became civilized when we were still hunters. That's and if right. you understand how it works, uh, it's actually an advantage. And yes, there are some things that normal quote-unquote people do that you won't be able to do, but there's so much that you can do that they can't do. So uh, as long as you're aware what you need to get some extra coverage on, um, it, it's been phenomenal. 
And uh, I know that uh, with me, exercise is a form of meditation because especially if you're lifting weights, you have to focus on what you're doing in the moment. Your brain can That's right. Because you That's can right. And if you lift weights, yourself. not only is lifting weights is not only good for depression, but it also it takes your mind off of things because yeah. if you're lifting up a, a big uh, like a barbell or or something like that, you have to be careful. You have to you know give it your attention. So by doing that, you're getting your mind, even if it's momentarily, you're getting your mind off of whatever woes you have in your mind and you're you're breaking through you're you're it's like you're switching you're switching from the the depression channel to the activity channel and it's really helpful yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that and uh in addition to my own uh um Quest for optimal wellness and uh, mythic fitness and so forth. Um, I, I share my workouts now publicly because, again, just to demonstrate to people that I'm really committed to this. But I have good days and I have off days, and that's okay. You know, this is part yeah. of the the process. You can't beat yourself up about uh, everything. Uh, and also, um, I've been uh, I created some shows on the topic, and now I'm active in my community. I'm part of the Tenafly Mayor's Wellness Campaign, and uh, I'm the champion of optimal wellness for the Crestfield Public Library. So uh, I'm getting to take this uh, solution I found uh, to a lot of uh, different uh, things that uh, um, kept me unhappy, uh, and I get to share them on a much uh, greater uh, scale. So I'm not Very a doctor. Good. I don't consider myself an expert, uh, but I've been on this quest for a while. I've learned a thing or three, and uh, you know, for what it's worth, I'll gladly uh, share it. And well, like I you, think I you're, I think you're becoming you know? you're becoming a wellness ambassador. Mm-hmm. And, I think and that's it's you. Awesome. What's that now? And it's awesome. Anybody can do it. You know, if you feel mm-hmm. if you are challenged with something. Uh, in the process of uh, solving this challenge rather than being uh, oppressed by it, there's a lot of good you can do, uh, not only for yourself and your loved ones, but for your world as well. And you've certainly demonstrated that uh, with uh, your book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. And by the way, if anybody in the listening audience is curious and they'd like to uh, email me with any questions that uh, they might have on procrastination or depression and what I went through or the things that we're talking about, please feel free to send me an email. My email address is info, that's I-N-F-O, at davidparkerauthor.com. That's info at David Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, author, A-U-T-H-O-R.com. And again, you can also go to my website, my humble website, and uh, and uh, check it out. And uh, again, if you feel like it, send me an email and let me know what your thoughts are. I write back to everyone who writes to me. I can vouch for that. Uh, you're awesome. And we only have a few minutes left, so why don't we return to your upcoming uh, talk and the various ways that people can access it. Yeah, so thank you. If you'd like, please go to uh go to uh, on uh, again my my talk will be next Wednesday the 31st of July at 1 p.m. That's 1 p.m. New York time at uh, B&H Photos event space which is on the second floor 
of B&H Photo. That's the big camera and computer shop in New York at 9th Avenue and 34th Street. You can come see me in person. I'll have copies of my book on sale at a specially reduced price, and I'll be autographing and doing a book signing after my talk. If you can't make it, that's okay. It, it will be it will be webcast or streamed live on the internet. All you need to do is go to the B and H Photo website. That's B as in boy and H as in Harry. So it's B ampersand or and H Photo. Just Google that, and when you get to their website, you'll see an icon for event space. And I'll be speaking there. You know, they have a different person. I think they have two people, one in lunchtime, which is what I'm going to be doing, and one in the evening. So check out their website. They have lots and lots of interesting speakers. Most of it has to do with computers and camera gear, but luckily I got a coveted spot, and I'll be speaking there Wednesday the 31st at 1 p.m. New York time if you can't be there in person. And if you are there in person and you found out about it, from the radio show, from this podcast, come on up and say hello to me and let me know that you, you heard me on the air, and I'll let, I'll let Hercules know that, that people were, were listening in and came. He'll be excited to hear that, won't I, you? I will be excited indeed. David, cool. thank you again so much. You're awesome. I'm, I'm glad our past You're thanking me. I'm thanking you, my friend. <laughs> Well, we thank each other. And uh, to all who listen tonight, thank you for being with us. Uh, I will be posting the information and anything that uh, David's doing from this point on on my timeline. So thank you for joining us. Until next time, this is Hercules and David wishing you joyous journeys and awesome adventures. Awesome adventures. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. <laughs>